everybody, and welcome back to another edition of The Christian Contrarian. I'm Gary Wayne, author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, and this is episode 43, The Nephilim Wars of the Conquest, The Battle of Rephidim. You know, one of the things that kind of concerns me at times is that our churches don't teach prehistory and prophecy. And so, although they teach a lot of good things in terms of the law and uh, what Jesus taught and all good stuff, they leave out the context as it relates to prehistory and prophecy. And the problem with that is that it leaves Christians open to attacks by polytheists and seculars, and seculars report to polytheists even though they don't realize that acting as their puppets, but it leaves open the ability for these two allied forces to seed doubt in Christians' faith. And so it's something we need to be aware of, and we need to understand the context of what happened in prehistory and how it relates to the prophecies so that they can't put those types of seed doubts in our minds that attack the faith, which they're trying to prepare people for the end time to be more easily deceived. So it's part of a larger strategy. And so when we look at some of the attacks that they do, it's about how evil the God of the Bible is. And I'm sure a lot of people have heard this, these attacks and they come up with all sorts of things, turning things upside down and inside out because they know Christians aren't well versed on some of these topics that if we understood the full context of what was going on in the Old Testament, we would better understand what's happening today and what happened back in prehistory and how they're connected and they're related. And one of these lines of attacks is how evil the God of the Bible is to take Israel and take them in to steal a land that uh, is occupied by people and to commit genocide on these people. And that's basically the line of attack. And because we're not taught the proper context, some people have to only rely on faith, hoping that that's not true, and others will have that seed of doubt that's been settled in there. And so I want to give a little bit of information to help with these things, because once we understand the full detail, then things start to make sense. And church leaders can't really teach the full detail because they're told to not teach Genesis 1 through, 6, 1 through 4 as being the creation of the giants or the Nephilim. And, uh, and so it doesn't provide them the ability to give the context to how giants show up after the flood, so they have to deny that, and or what is going on with things like the context in the conquest of the covenant land at the time of the Exodus. And so that's the opening that the adversaries like to seize on. An area that they've they've set up very, very well. So we need we need to be able to help other Christians. And so when we look at the war of Rephidim, this was not a war of humans against humans. And we need to understand that. This was a war between humans, the Israelites, and human hybrids of the Amalekites and Rephaim. 
that are in and amongst the Amalekites. And those would be the Amalekim, and we're going to touch on the difference on that distinction in a few minutes. And so this is happening on the third month into the Exodus. So this is a ragtag collection of slaves fed on polytheism for over 400 years while in Egypt and only this echo, this voice that's kind of distant about their, their God and Abraham and Jacob and everything that goes along with the teachings that were brought by Jacob into Egypt. And so this is the nation that is totally unprepared for war. And except for the powers of God and as was distributed through Moses and the angel of the Lord that led them, the Israel could not have escaped Egypt. And now they're moving into the land of the covenant. And this is before the scouts even go into the land. And they're going to remain after the battle of Rephidim in this area until about another year until into the second year when you start to get the timing of the account in numbers 13 with the scouts just so that people kind of have a, a a good understanding of the chronology and they were camping in the wilderness and so the battle of Rephidim is recorded in exodus 19 and uh, we'll i'm going to come back to some of the details a little bit later but we need to understand the context so who are the Amalekites? Well, the Amalekites are typically understood as being founded by a particular patriarch named Amalek. And Amalek is the son of Eliphaz and Timnah. And I'll come back to them in a minute. And Eliphaz is the son of Esau. And Esau was the brother of Jacob, the elder brother. And what's important about understanding that association is that Esau, as being the elder brother, would normally have received the blessings and the birthright and the inheritance and the promise of the Messiah through his branch and people have become known as the Edomites. But through a various set of situations, Jacob receives all of that, all of which Esau was never happy about. And we get clear depictions of that in the Bible, even though there is a resolution and a forgiving, that forgiveness seemingly didn't penetrate down through the generations, nor with some of Esau's actions. And so Esau uh, marries Canaanites and Horim, who are you know wives of people of the land that displeases that displeases Jacob, and so Eliphaz is the son of Esau and Ada, who's a Canaanite, and in the War of Giants we talked about Canaanites and particularly in the kings of the Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the Pentapolis Plain. Uh, were hybrids and led by Raphaim kings. And so Eliphaz is born from a Canaanite, 
probably a hybrid daughter. And then Eliphaz will take on a few wives as well, but in particular will marry Timna, who is also a Horim, a Raphaim, as Deuteronomy 2 talks about. And we'll touch on that a little bit more in a few minutes. And so Amalek has sort of a three-part bloodline scioning forming who he is and what he is. So he has the royal sort of Israelite bloodline through Esau, even though none of the blessings and the birthrights and the inheritance and the Messiah blessing goes with them, but also a, a hybrid Canaanite that goes back to Raphaim and through a Raphaim Horim daughter of Seir, a Duke of Edom, who we will also talk a little bit more about if time permits. And this is the patriarch for this hybrid people that are going to be a mix of humans and hybrids and Raphaim forming this, this rather complicated culture, but heavily weighted to the hybrid aspect. And this is a nation who was the most powerful nation of its time, a revered nation. Egypt even feared Amalek at this time. And so it's either greater and as a military power than Egypt at this point in time or almost equal. And so is one of those fierce nations that are built for war and is heavily influenced and supported by giants and people who are taller than giants. And we know Amalek, the Amalekites are hybrids as well, because in Numbers 13 in the scouting report, they're amongst the peoples that are put in, in, the, in the, the scouting report that happens afterwards. And these are the ones that are taller, but not Ahim, Sheshai, and um, Talmai, who are Anakim, and as Deuteronomy 2 talks about, is our giants, which goes back to the word Rapha and the plural is Raphaim, they are Anakim, just as the Horim are Anakim, or, or Raphaim that we're talking about here that Esau and uh, Eliphaz are intermarrying into. So you see this, this type of bloodline that is starting to form, which is going to have some impacts as it rolls down through history. And so when we look at uh, Amalek, is he has those three components within the Sioning. And these Amalekites are not the same Amalekites that are in Genesis 14 and the War of Giants, because that predates the Amalekim by several generations. And so we know then that the Amalekim in the War of Giants are also part of this mix and part of where you get that patronymic name for the peoples. Uh, another term that people might use might be eponymous, which is naming after a particular individual for a name of people. And this is a common trait that happens not only uh, as a recorded in the table of nations, but specifically that patronymic aspect of the kings and the bloodlines of the Raphaim, which is very, very important to understand. And Seir, 
who is the chief duke of Edom who settles there from before time, before the flood, or I mean after the flood, is actually the Hebrew word 8165, which means hairy, which is typically the same meaning for um, uh, understanding that the Nephilim were hairy. And the Horim goes back to um, the word cave dweller and white and pale white, just as the Nephilim were also white and connected to the Hurrians and connected to the Marianu that I'll come back to in, in a second in, in the Aryans. And so Seir is also the area that the Amalekites live in. And so there's an intermixing of the Horim and the Malachim and the Horites and the Amalekites. So that's a lot of that mixing that I was talking about. And Seir is rooted in 8163, which is Sair, which is transliterated into English in Isaiah 13 and 34 for Satyr. And a Satyr is a degraded goat god of probably Seraphim who created the Nephilim originally before the flood and are probably part of the same group of people that create the serpentine looking pale white blonde hair blue-eyed red hair hazel-eyed giants after the flood in a second incursion and part of the Balim all who would have also have gone to the abyss after the flood for the same crimes against creation that their uh, predecessors did before the flood. And so these Amalekim are intermixed with a primary Aboriginal Idumean giant race of the Horim, where uh, Seir takes his name from a satyr and probably the mountain and or vice versa in terms of how that name comes down. And so we need to understand that there's an important couple of races that are involved in the southern part of Israel of the covenant land that is going to roll through not only the time of the conquest but last into the time of the monarchy and who King David is going to be fighting and it's going to fall on him to clean up that situation. But let's talk a little bit more about these Dukes of Edom and as they start to relate to some of the bloodlines that we need to be aware of for the end time. So the Dukes of Edom uh, are there from the before time, so immediately after the flood. And I don't interpret that in terms of uh, before the flood, but immediately after the flood, just as we talked about. So before the Canaanites moved in with them. And in Genesis, th Genesis thir 36, we get that word Dukes for the Dukes of Edom, just as Seir is that chief patriarch Duke of Edom that is going to produce Timna, that's going to intermarry with Eliphaz to produce Amalek to be the patriarch to the Amalekite hybrids. And Duke is a word that is number 441 in Hebrew, which is Aleph, which means chieftain and leader. And this is the source for the term that the polytheists like to use, which is the elf kingdoms from Aleph, elf, a transliteration of that. And from Eliphaz, just as Eliphaz means uh, God and gold, so the good of gold. Eliphaz as in elf, in Aleph, as in Aleph of the Duke word. They, they take that portion to condense into the elf kingdoms. 
and or the um, elven bloodline, the elven kings. So a plural in terms of the elves is, is another look at how that transliteration and play on words comes down. And Aleph is rooted in the Hebrew word elf, A-L-P-H. And that means to learn, to teach. So within that is the knowledge of the mystical religions that they worship through the Baalim and the knowledge that comes down through the gods, the illicit knowledge and the cult of knowledge, which is Gnosticism, from which the elven bloodline of the uh, Tuatha de Danan and the Cathars and the Elbigensians all use that term. It's the bloodline of the fates, the bloodlines of the fairies, which is elf and elven are related into, and that this is the bloodline of the dragon messiah that they want to bring out on onto the world the blood of the antichrist and this is the bloodlines that are intermixed as the dukes of king of edom with the edomites from esau and are trying to wipe israel from the face of the earth so that they can usurp those blessings and those inheritances and the um, bloodline and the promise of the Messiah to replace it with a dragon Messiah that has these, these Sion, Raphaim bloodlines intermixed with. And the Tuatha de Danan are in polytheism Scythians that escaped from Tartarus. Uh, after the flood. That's their rationale for how they show up in that they are the tribe of Danu or Anu of Sumeria. They are the Aryans that migrate north with the blonde and uh, blue-eyed ones up the Danube River to uh, Germany and to Sweden and into Russia. And then you have the red hair hazel ones that migrated into England and Scotland and into Ireland, the Tuatha de Danan, the tribe of Danu, the tribe of Anu, the chief god of the Sumerian pantheon that is the parent, uh, father-parent god of Anki and Enlil. So we need to understand these contexts. And this is the Elbigen's bloodline that is talked about within the, the Cathars and within the Tuatha de Danan mythos and culture, the fairy group. And these were pale skinned, they were like the Celts because the Celts were hybrids that were intermarried with them and had similar skin colors. And these were the Elbigensians that come from Albion um, as the chief patriarch. So Elbigens is Albion. And gens is that genealogical um, word used to trace back to one specific patriarch. And Elbion means white and bleached. So very much connected to the fair folk, the fairy folk of the Tuatha de Danan who were pale white. And the Horim, which were also white. So you see how this comes down. Then it's intermixed in the allegories of the fairy race which is the Tuatha de Danan and the Elven and the Elf kingdoms and the Eliphaz and Alephs of the Dukes of Edom. So if we understand that we're going to understand some of the influence of this dragon messiah that is coming at least from 
these bloodlines, but there are many Antichrist bloodlines. And so we have to be aware of the Anjou and uh, the Bourbon family and the Habsburg-Lorraine, all these bloodlines and, and probably the Windsors. They're competing bloodlines, but I don't want to get caught too far down that rabbit hole today because every time you say something you can open up a door and we can go down there for hours before we come back up for air again which is some of the beauty but the complexity of some of the things that once we dig into this is is really meaningful and meaty that we need to learn and so when we talk about some of the bloodlines that are coming out of the Amalekites you have Agag A-G-A-G in Numbers 24-7 and he is this dragon messiah-like character that is described in there that has, you know, is trying to have a power like the coming messiah. And Agog is a patronymic title like a title for Caesar, like a title for Pharaoh, for a king. And that's why we have Agog, a gang named, and a patronymic name. So it's, it becomes one of the same. And in 1 Samuel 15, we get Agog with the Amalekites in the time of King Saul, who's told to wipe the Israelites off from, from the face of the earth, because that's what they were trying to do in the Battle of Rephidim. But of course, Saul doesn't do that, and then they survive. And that's why, even though David comes along and cleans up and takes care of the Amalekites, when he takes over from Saul, we get an Agagite in Esther 3, one through six, whose name is Ammon, who sits on Ahasuerus's royal court of Persia of kings. So this is that royal bloodline that is using the same words and the same title, that patronymic name, down through history. And so just as the Amalekim bloodline has that patronymic title, so does the Edomites through another line, which is Hadad. And Hadad or Adad is the Sumerian name for Baal of the Baalim, the chief god of the Baalim. And so you're going to get Hadad show up down through, you know, beginning in, in, in Genesis 36 and then down into the time of David, who he's going to be fighting these various Hadads. And same with, you know, the time of Solomon, they show up. This is that bloodline of kings that is coming down through the people of Seir and southern uh, land of the covenant and this is the people that are going to have the bloodline of these Edomite Hadad kings intermixed that are going to be part of the Herod bloodline who without coincidence is going to try and kill the Messiah baby Jesus and prevent that from happening because that's what they're there to do that's what their their role has always been and will be again in the in the end time they're going to try and replace um, Jesus with uh, their dragon messiah. So there's going to be several bloodlines and it's important to understand those bloodlines as we come down through it. And Agog has a interesting Assyrian and Aryan etymology just to show you how that influences because those Aryans and Hurrians, which are all the intermix and different branches of the same people from polytheism, they come down into Sumeria and the covenant land and into the Amalekites and then into um, Egypt and all intermarry with all of the kings and Sion, those bloodlines. And Agog has an etymology that goes back to Assyria uh, that means a violent tyrant, which is part of the sort of mythos of 
the Amalekites being this powerful nation at the time of the Battle of Rephidim. And the Horites are a hybrid race. They are not the Horim. We need to keep them straight. It's not Hori uh, of, November, uh, of Numbers 13.5 and Genesis 36.22, which is the other Hori. Uh, numbers will start there is a, is a Simeonite. And way after the dating of Horim in Genesis 14 um, and in Genesis uh, 36. And also you have the son of Lotan, which is the son, uh, Lotan is the son of Seir. So his name is Horai. So that might be the patronymic name that the hybrids take. But the hybrids come after the Raphaim. And as we've already talked about, the Horim and Seir are Raphaim giants. So once we have that understood, and then we can understand how Deuteronomy 2 comes in and explains all of these giant names as being giants, which is that um, word Rapha, just as Horim actually shows up instead of Horite. And so I think the terms where it says Horim, or I mean Horite, it should actually be translated as Horim, just as the Rapha or the Raphaim, and the Nephilim are the, have the I-M suffix plural, and so does the Seraphim. So we need to understand that we should probably do not get them confused. It is not referred to them as ites, but as I-M in the hybrid humans as the ites, not to suggest Israelites are hybrid humans, but just to make those distinctions in terms of what the nations are called. So once we understand that, and we understand that the, the, the Harim and the Amalekim were the aboriginals that the Canaanites intermarried with, a whole bunch of things start to make sense that the Canaanites would have done the same crimes as we talked about in the, uh, the show on Ham's curse as the Nephilim did. And they defiled the land completely. And they were going to wait like the Amalekim in ambush to destroy Israel from the face of the earth. And so that those blessings could be picked up through the scioning of bloodlines in the Horim and in the Amalekim, which produces the fairy kingdoms. And so the war, the Battle of Rephidim, where we started off with about 20, 20 some odd minutes ago. This happens in the third month coming out of Egypt, as we talked about, in the time of Exodus. This is a ragtag nation of slaves not ready for war. And they're up against one of the most powerful nations of after the flood, the Amalekites and the Amalekim, Rephaim, hybrids, uh, a complete nation ready to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. And so this is the people that have not yet forged their faith, which will come after 40 years in the desert to take on these monsters who are occupying the squatted land that's not for them because the land of Canaan has been squatted by Canaan and Rephaim. And the Canaanites are part of the Hamites whose inheritance are in Africa, like Cush in Ethiopia and Put in Libya and Mizraim in Egypt. And, you know, the Sidonites who are Canaanites, they actually um, set up Carthage, which is probably is the land that Canaan would have had. But they chose to intermarry with the, the Raphaim to 
take off the curse of servitude and bondsmanship through a military force and hybrid creation of nations to um, not be servants to the other sons of, of, of Noah and uh, their descendants. And so Israel goes out to meet them in battle. And Moses is standing on a mountain and he has people around him to hold up his arms and to show that it's God that is going to deliver them and to try and begin the faith forging um, that is going to even take more time, even after this unbelievable battle, uh, for Israel to see and watch what happens. Is that when, they're when Moses is able to keep his arms above his shoulders, Israel wins, but his arms tire. And when his arms start to sag, then the Amalekim, the Malachites start to win. And so then his arms are being pushed up. And this goes up from sun up to sundown until they finally they hold Moses' arms up long enough and Israel wins. But through the power of God and through the power of the faith of the people to keep and the devotion of Moses is to keep the arms up. But God doesn't look upon this attack by the Amalekim favorably. And what he actually looks upon is exactly what I think that I talked about earlier is they're trying to seize the complete birthrights that Esau lost by wiping them from the face of the earth because they would inherit it and produce the dragon Messiah with all of those blessings and inheritances. Can you imagine that? That if that had happened? I can't. We'd certainly have a different history, that's for sure. Uh, however it turns out, but you can't beat God. So even if they had won that battle, God would have foresaw it and through the power which he has greater than free choice over, uh, would have let it played out and still win because he knows everything is the Alpha Omega. But because of this war, God declares from generation to generation, Israel will be at war with the Amalekites and the Amalekim, just as that carries through throughout the ages of the judges and then in the time of King Saul with the war and then David finishing that off. And God says, Amalek, Amalek and the Amalekites are not to be forgiven for their sins at the time of the Exodus and that they must be destroyed from under heaven, from under the face of the earth. So the same thought, concept of destruction, of destroying Israel from the face of the earth is applied to Amalek and the Amalekim in due diligence, as in Old Testament law, an eye for an eye. And God ensured that through Saul and then David that this would happen after Israel was given for rest. So if that gives you a little more insight you can only imagine what we're going to talk about in as we talk about the conquest battles throughout uh, the conquest of the covenant land. And there are many. We're going to talk about this. and We're going to talk about the details. And it's going to bring this whole war to life because this is just the beginning. This is just the first entry level into the Nephilim wars of the post-Diluvian Raphaim. So... Until next time, may God bless you abundantly. And if you wanted the document for this, get a hold of me through my website at thegenesis6conspiracy.com and just ask for the War of the Amalekites or the Battle of Rephidim and I will send it to you. So until next time, thank you and God bless.